Jeremiah 11. We're picking up in the middle of the chapter. That's not Jeremiah. Jeremiah 11, we think Jeremiah is not written chronologically, not collected in the order in which these messages were given from God to Jeremiah to give to the people. But we think this one dates to around 621 B.C. or slightly afterwards because we have reasons to believe, and we talked about it last week, and we got way too muddy with it last week, but we, we, we think that these are things that God gave by way of exhortation to the people in the wake of their rediscovery of the word, specifically their rediscovery of Deuteronomy. Just going to throw that out there as our premise and keep moving because we got way bogged down last week. If you want to get deeper into it, grab me and we absolutely can. But Jeremiah 11 began, let's, let's quickly recap, began last week with God announcing, hey Judah, you're, you're still expected to keep the covenant. You lost it for a while, but you found it and now you need to keep it. The Mosaic Covenant, obviously, and, and perhaps that particular form of it collected in Deuteronomy. Some people believe that's what Hilkiah found and presented to Josiah. That's a little speculative. But regardless, keep the covenant. The covenant that dates back 700 years, the covenant that began at the base of Mount Sinai. And verse 6, still chapter 11, God sends Jeremiah on, on a teaching tour of sorts, a mission trip, a preaching circuit, they called it in the 1800s. Hey, Jeremiah, take this message on the road. Preach it in all of the streets throughout all of Jerusalem, but when you're done, go and preach it in every city in Judah, which Jeremiah apparently did, and it was apparently not, at least as far as I could tell, particularly fruitful. Verse 9 we read, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Despite what they had vowed centuries earlier, and despite what, what they had repeatedly reaffirmed over the centuries, and despite what Jeremiah had reminded them, the hearts of the people were still set to continually do wicked. Which... God continues, hey, this is going to force my hand. This is going to make me do the thing that I don't want to do. This is going to compel me to bring judgment, which of course had already happened to the northern tribes of Israel. And God has been saying, it's going to happen to the southern tribes of Judah. That's where we left off last week, verse 17. The Lord of hosts who planted you, God who established them in the land in the first place has pronounced doom against you. For the evil of the house of Israel is being repeated by the house of Judah, which they've done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. That's where we left off last week. As we pick up this week, the voice changes. It's no longer God speaking. It's no longer Jeremiah speaking for God, and it, 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 it's, it's Jeremiah speaking to us, essentially. It's Jeremiah crying out to God and to us across the centuries, his words. Verse 18. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it. This, what? Well, I know it. What? 
you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. What we're going to learn over the next several verses is that Jeremiah's message struck a nerve. It wasn't particularly popular anywhere, but it provoked a particularly strong reaction in his hometown of Anathoth, a little village three miles or so northeast of Jerusalem. Not surprising, because you and I are familiar with the proverb, a prophet is never welcome where? In his hometown, in his home country. Least welcome among those who know him best. We know the proverb. We know the best example of that proverb was, of course, Jesus. But Jeremiah is also an example of that proverb, and he's surprised to learn that the people from his own town, people that he grew up with, people that he knows better than he knows anybody, have decided to kill him. And in killing him, verse 19, hopefully cut him off from the land of the living and cut off his lineage. Jeremiah wasn't married. Chapter 16, we're going to learn that the Lord tells him not to marry. So the idea is if we kill Jeremiah, we put an end to the bloodline, and maybe that will silence God's voice in our midst. Maybe we won't have to listen to God anymore if we kill Jeremiah and don't... Yeah, like that's going to work. What happens every time Judah kills a prophet? God raises up another prophet. So God reveals this plan, this, this plot, this conspiracy to Jeremiah. Verse 20, Jeremiah responds, But, O Lord of hosts, he who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you have revealed my cause. Smite them, Lord. Nuke them. Wipe them out, God. Sort of. That's sort of what he's saying. We have to read this carefully because, because the first thing that strikes us when we read Jeremiah's words, verse 20, is what we're not seeing. We read this through our New Testament eyes. We look at this with our New Testament sensibilities, and what we're looking for is what we don't see is, Father, forgive them. I'm sure they don't know what they're doing. Because Jesus prayed that. And Stephen prayed that. And at times, Paul prayed things very, very close to that. And it's easy to fault Jeremiah, sitting where we are. It's easy to fault Jeremiah for not praying like that, for not turning the other cheek, for not loving his enemies. But if we think about it harder, why would that be Jeremiah's response? Jesus hadn't taught us to love our enemies yet. Jesus wouldn't teach that for six centuries. Jeremiah didn't understand that salvation wasn't a function of law-keeping. He didn't understand that salvation came only through God loving his enemies and making a way to love his enemies through the shed blood of his own son. So, point being, we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't let it distract us staring at what Jeremiah doesn't Say We wouldn't, shouldn't be shocked at what Jeremiah's prayer isn't. We shouldn't let that keep us from seeing what it is. What it is, of course, is a, an imprecatory prayer. We're familiar, most of us, on a Wednesday night with the imprecatory psalms. 
David had a lot of them, full of really great lines like, may their path be dark and slippery, or God, break their teeth. But there, here's, here's the thing about imprecatory prayer, whether it's Jeremiah here or, or David or Asaph in the Psalms, the thing that people miss that we need to not miss, and, and let's look at the specific example in front of us. In the notes, I listed um, a bunch of the imprecatory Psalms um, for the sake of the recording, 7, 35, 55, 58, 59, 69, 109, 139, those are Psalms of David. Psalm 79 and 137 are imprecatory psalms written by others. Look at those at your leisure. You'll see the same thing as the example that we have here tonight from Jeremiah. Verse 20, Jeremiah is not looking for personal payback. What's he asking God for? Borderline demanding. Justice. But who's justice? We have, to, we have to look at this and understand. We have to see, let me see your vengeance on them. He uses the word vengeance, and we tend to give that a personal connotation, but he makes very clear he's looking for God's vengeance, God's justice, God's judgment, and not his own. That's significant. He's not taking matters into his own hands. He's not dictating to God exactly what he believes God should do. He just believes that God should do something. But he leaves it to God. He says, in effect, I've revealed my cause. I've, I've pled my case. I've submitted my, my evidence, my briefs, my affidavits. It's all there entered into the record, Your Honor. And I trust that you'll rule in my favor. I trust that you'll punish them appropriately. Side question, is imprecatory prayer appropriate for you and I as New Testament believers? People are quick to say no. I'm going to say yes and no. It's no in the sense that we know better. We know that having been forgiven much, we are to do what? Forgive much. As, as we have been forgiven, so shall we forgive. We're, we're to love our enemies. Arguably the most radical thing that had ever been said when Jesus said it. We're to love our enemies. Why? Because God loved us when we were his enemies. So in that sense, no, we don't get to pray like David. God break their teeth. <laughs> but yes, there's something for us to not lose here. There's something for us to not uh, miss. Ultimately, what is Jeremiah praying? Ultimately, he's praying, God, here's what I see. Your will be done. God, I, I think there's a case for justice here. And I'm going to leave it in your hands. Be because, because what else could he do? Jeremiah couldn't fathom God's justice being poured out on Jesus in his place, in our place, in his enemy's place. So he didn't know how to pray, God save them. We do. Is it okay to say, God, save them, and if they refuse to be saved, then judge them? I mean, that's sort of saying, God, your will be done, because he's willing that none shall perish. But if we refuse to meet God in his grace, we will meet him 
in his judgment. So it, it, it's sort of the same thing. God, your will be done. His will is always for anyone to be saved. But those who reject the salvation that Jesus purchased on, at the cross, they will meet God in judgment. I was praying with, with a small group the other day and about one situation in particular, one of my older brothers and the Lord said, God, change their hearts or change their address. Okay. <laughs> what Jeremiah got right and what we, can, what we can learn, leave it with God. His ways are above our ways. He has ways of appealing to people, presenting his love, offering his grace that we can't fathom. And he has ways of judging that are beyond our understanding. God, I'm leaving this at your feet. Verse 20. Which, which God applauds. Verse 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, stop prophesying, Jeremiah. Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hands. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and there shall be no remnant of them, for I'll bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. Those who are trying to silence you, Jeremiah, and by extension, those who are trying to silence me, God says, it's not going to work. And I'll punish them. In, in, in a year, in the year of their punishment, which we generally accept as 587 B.C., the final Babylonian attack, preceded by siege, which would have resulted in famine. Footnote, though. No remnant of them, verse 23, doesn't refer to the entire population of Anathoth. God doesn't wipe out the entire village. Only those who attempted to kill Jeremiah. Only those who said it in their hearts to muzzle the voice of God. How do we know? Ezra 2.23, when Zerubbabel leads the returnees, there are 128 people with Zerubbabel, specifically from Anathoth. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. But even not knowing that God would extend that much mercy to the people of his hometown, Jeremiah is kind of dissatisfied with God's answer because God's answer is, Jeremiah, all in good time. I hear what you're saying. I'm not ignoring you. Justice will be meted out all in good time. Crossing over to chapter 12, Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, Lord, when I plead with you. Let, yeah, let me talk with you about your judgments. The word righteous there is sadiq. It's an, it's an important word in Hebrew. Jeremiah is essentially saying, you're right, God. You're always right. You're right about everything. Righteous is who you are. I'm not questioning your integrity. But I'm going to argue with you anyway. Because right now, in this situation, in this particular case, I'm not seeing it. You're righteous Help me understand how this situation accords with your righteousness. Still verse 1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You've planted them. Yes, they've taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You're nearer in their mouth, but far from their mind. 
He's not the only one to ask the question, obviously. Why do the wicked prosper? It's a theme throughout Scripture. Job, in the oldest book of the Bible, is the first to ask the question. David, again and again in Psalms, asks the question. So does Asaph in his Psalms. Other Old Testament saints. And you and I ask the same question. You're good, God. You show me, you tell us, you reveal again and again that you're good. Good is who you are. Good is, we just sang about your goodness. But even having just sung about God's goodness, don't we sometimes wonder, God, how can you let evil stand? How can you let cosmic wrongdoing go uncorrected? Jeremiah goes a step further. He says to God, God, how do you not see what's going on? Because surely if you saw what was going on, you would do something about it. So I can only conclude that you don't see it. Verse 2, they're near in their mouth, but far from their mind. God, they're, they're outwardly religious, but they're inwardly black. They're externally observant, sure. They, 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 they do all the right sacrifices and offerings at all the right times. But they're hypocrites. God, how do you not know this? You see my heart, he says, verse 3. You, Lord, know me. You've seen me. You've tested my heart toward you. How come you're not testing them? Because if you were, I can only believe that you'd pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day, uh, prepare them for the day of slaughter. God, if you saw, if you understood, if you knew what I know, You'd destroy them, and you should destroy them, God. You'd prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there, because they said he will not see our final end. Okay, verse 4 is hard, the last part. Who, who is he? And, and is, is he, is, is Jeremiah speaking for the enemies of God, are they saying, God can't see us? God can't see us. We can do whatever we want. Or is it, yeah, God sees it, but he's not going to judge us in our lifetime? Are they maybe piggybacking on God's promise to Josiah? That the judgment would happen after Josiah died? Maybe. Is, is he Jeremiah? And, and is Jeremiah saying, I'm going to be long dead before you get around to judging these people, God? It's hard to know. Whatever it means, there's no question where Jeremiah is coming from. He's coming from a place of frustration. He wants God's justice now. Verse 5, God replies to his frustration with a word of exhortation. Verse 5, God says, Jer Jerry, you haven't seen anything yet. If you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? Two figures of speech. The first one is if running track wears you out, you're not going to do very well in the steeplechase. If you can't run against men, how are you going to run against horses? The second figure of speech, if you can't navigate your way through the open plain, how are you going to get through the thick jungle? God's point, verse 6, For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dwelt, dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they've called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. God is telling Jeremiah, look, you think it's bad. It's even worse than you think. The few allies you think you have in your hometown, your family, 
They're, they're saying nice things to you, but behind your back, they're egging on the people who want to kill you. And God's point, God's message, you better get used to it, Jeremiah. You better count the cost. Because if you serve me, there will be times like this. If you serve the true and living God, there will be times he is your only true friend. Your family says something to you. It may or may not be true. Your friends say something to you. They may or may not mean it. Jeremiah, you need to get used to the fact this is what ministry is like. And you need to accept the fact that this is what it's going to be like for a while. The justice that you're craving isn't going to happen on your timetable. It's going to happen on mine. And there will be times where you will pay the price, God speaking to Jeremiah, God speaking to us, there will be times that we will pay the price for God's long-suffering. Jeremiah, you want to serve me? Calvary, you want to serve me? That's what you're signing up for. My judgment will come when it comes. In the meantime, while I'm patient, while I'm long-suffering, it's going to be hard. Verse 7, I've forsaken my house. I've left my heritage. I've given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. God is saying judgment will come. This is prophetic past tense. He's speaking about something that hasn't happened as if it already has. He's conveying, look, it's certain. It's not, it's, there's no question. I'm going to hand over the temple and the land and even my people to their enemies. Why? Because my people have become my enemy. Verse 8, my heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Therefore, I've hated it. And here we've got the contrast that we see sometimes in the Old Testament between love and hate. God is saying, look, this, this is my people that I planted in the land, the people that I call, the people that I love, the people that I've uniquely singled out for preferential treatment, but I can't protect them anymore. I'm going to have to let judgment happen to them. And it, they're going to be convinced it's because I hate them. It's going to feel like I hate them because that's what it'll feel like compared to sheltering in the shadow of my wings, sheltering under my love. Every parent has experienced this when we have to discipline our kids. You hate me, and I hate you. And none of that is true, but it feels like it to our children in the moment, and so too for God and his children. Verse 9, my heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around uh, all around her against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. God says, I'm going to let the nations see you the way that I see you, speaking to Judah. As something strange, as, as one nod of the flock. And they're going to turn on you and attack you. Because you're not one of them. And you're not one of them. And you've never been one of them. But the problem is, is now that you don't want to be part of me either. So you're alone. It's what you asked for. It's what you've, it's what the path you've, you've chosen for yourself. You have no one to blame but yourself. Verse 10, many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They've trodden my portion underfoot. They've made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They've made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is desolate because no one takes it to heart. Rulers here 
scholars debate, is rulers foreign leaders who will come in and, and trample Judah underfoot, or is it their own shepherds who are responsible? It's Wednesday night. This is where Patrick says, why not both? The failure of Judah's shepherds resulted in destruction at the hand of foreign shepherds, Gentile kings, Gentile generals. But God's point in, in, in this discourse from verse 7 on, it's all going to happen, Jeremiah. God's answering Jeremiah's prayer. He's responding to his question borderline demand. <laughs> it's going to happen. The things that you're asking for, the things that you're expecting, the things that you're so sure accord with my character, they will happen in my timing. In my timing, not in yours. Verse 12, the plunderers have come, still prophetic past tense. Hasn't happened yet, but God sees it as if, it as if it's already done. The plunderers have come on the desolate heights of the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end. No flesh shall have peace. They've sown wheat but reaped thorns. They've put themselves to pain but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. My people are working hard at choosing evil. They're diligently worshiping, worshiping idols. I see it, Jeremiah. And in time, in my time, they'll reap what they've sown. In my time. This is one of the places where God exhorts us. Don't confuse his delay with his delight. The fact that God's long-suffering should never be confused with God approving. No, everything that you're telling me that I should hate, everything that you're thinking that I don't see, I see it, I hate it. And in time, I'll answer it. In my time, I'll allow the Gentile nations, verse 14, to punish Judah. And then they'll know my anger as well. Thus says the Lord, verse 14, against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I've caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I'll pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be, after I've plucked them out, that I'll return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. And there things got interesting. What did God just say? He said, I'm going to take Israel, Judah, but more broadly Israel, and remove them from the land that I gave them. They're going to be carried off. And I'm going to take Gentiles from the land that, that was apportioned to them, and I'm going to let them settle in Judah and in Israel. They're going to trade places. And history tells us that that's what happened. As Judah was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians, other people groups settled in their place. But what else did God just say? More to the point, what did he not say? He didn't say that it would stay that way forever. He didn't say that the land would change ownership ever. From the beginning of, of, of God's covenant with Abraham, he made it clear and he reiterated on several occasions, the land was the everlasting possession of Abraham's descendants. Enjoyment of the land, occupancy of the land was contingent on their obedience. 
it's like in some counties, some municipalities, you, you need to get an inspection and you need to, to have inspectors sign off so that you can get a certificate of occupancy. Somebody has to say, yeah, you're obeying all of the rules and regulations and, and restrictions in order to occupy the house, but they don't have the power to take the house away from you. In much the same case, Israel forfeited their certificate of occupancy. They were no longer entitled to live in the land, but the land belonged to them. Because God says, verse 15, after a time, I'm going to put everybody back where they came from. I'm going to put the Gentiles back in their place, and I'm going to put the Jews back in their place. But as we wrap up, verse 15, 16, 17, this is where it gets really interesting. Because, of course, the history tells us that in 587 B.C. and then subsequently under Zerubbabel, that, that switcheroo took place. But in 70 A.D. it happened again, didn't it? In 70 A.D. the people were once again driven out from the land. Why? For disobedience. And once again Gentiles moved in. Verse 15. Then it shall be. That's not quite as clear-cut as if we were to read in that day. We're sensitized reading Isaiah and, and other prophets. When we see a phrase, it shall be in that day. If we saw that, we'd say, okay, alert, we've got a long-term fulfillment coming. It shall be, it shall come to pass in some translations. A little bit more ambiguous, but, but look where... Look where God goes. It shall be after I've plucked them out that I shall return. Well, that's interesting. And have compassion on them. And bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. Okay, still sounds like under Zerubbabel, but read verse 16. It shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. When in the history of Israel did that happen? You didn't miss it. It hasn't. But we read in the prophets, it will. We read places like Zechariah chapter 8, which is unquestionably prophecy of the second coming that ten Gentiles will, will cling to the tunic of one Jew, begging him, teach us about your God. That will happen in the kingdom. It hasn't happened yet. Is there a long-term fulfillment to these last few verses? Is there dual fulfillment? I think maybe. It shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives. As they taught my people to swear by idols, they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. When has that happened? It hasn't. But Psalm 2 verse 9 tells us that then in the day of the Lord, Jesus will break the nations with a rod of iron just a little glimpse at what I think might be a dual fulfillment there at the end of chapter 12. But as we wrap up, Jeremiah's laments are lament, isn't it? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do bad things happen to me? God, I'm serving you. I'm following you. 
I've given my life to you. I've sacrificed so much for you, God. Why do the hits keep on coming? God's answer to Jeremiah is his answer to us. It's always darkest before it's totally black. (laughs) Because seriously, what do we know about the days ahead? We have every reason to believe they'll get worse. When God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you ain't seen nothing yet. He could well be talking to us. In the end, do God's scales balance? Of course they do. In the end, does Jesus return to minister judgment upon the unbelieving world? Of course he does. Between then and now, we know that we have tribulation with a capital T. But before that, Jesus tells us, you and me, to expect what? Tribulation with a small t. Trials. Before the vindication, before the celebration, we've got every reason to expect persecution. In many parts of the world, it's already begun. And what am I saying? In many parts of the world, it never stopped. So we have a choice as we wrap up tonight. We have a choice to shake our fist at God, like Jeremiah. Why not now? Why so much evil? Why such a long season in the wilderness? Why so much suffering? Why so many prayers unanswered? Why so long, Lord? Or we can say, Sadik. Lord, you're righteous. Not with the but that Jeremiah attaches at the end of it. Not, Lord, you're righteous, but, but Lord, you're righteous, period. Sadik. You have a plan. And God, show me my part of that plan. God, show us at Calvary our part of that plan. Reveal the next thing, Lord, and the thing after that, and the thing after that. David Guzik at the Men's Retreat a few years ago reminded us, God didn't give us a map. He didn't give us a step-by-step guidebook to navigate our way through this world. Why? Because he wanted us to listen to our guide. Sadik. God, you're righteous, you're right, your ways are right, and if we follow them, we will follow in the ways of righteousness, including praying for Israel. Are they far from God? Of course they are. Was the land giving to them as their everlasting possession? Of course it was. Does God bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel? Of course he does. Zadok. Lord, lead us in the paths of righteousness. Keep us close to you, close to your heart. In times of not knowing, Lord, we know you. In times of not understanding, Lord, we trust you. In times of pain, loss, doubt, We cling to the one sure thing in the universe, that's you. You tell us here and elsewhere following you is a lonely road. There are easier paths, but there aren't better paths. There are wider paths, more crowded paths. There aren't truer paths. Lord, keep us close to your heart. Keep us close to you. 
And comfort us, even as you comforted Jeremiah, that you have a plan. And that in your timing, all things will work together for good. You've promised. Have your way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.